All right, folks, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckeristas? What the fuck, Astanis? What the fuck, Anucks? What the fuck, Adelics? What the fuckleberry thins? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. Uh, all right, here we go. I just wanted to add that too. Here we go. See how that does. See how that. See where that takes me. I'm fully clothed today. I am uh, in my garage here at the Cat Ranch, getting ready to go and uh, direct the last day of uh, of actual shooting on uh, Marin season two, the IFC show that I'm involved with um, by name and appearance. I'm feeling a little melancholy. Because it was a long haul, you know, and uh, we, we did 13 shows at a sort of a, a breakneck pace, and you get very attached to everybody you're working with. It's, a, it's like a carnival. When you do a shoot, it's like working at the carnival. You know, you have a season, everybody's there, all the clowns and the people that put things up and the people that work behind the scenes and the people that make it all happen, and then all of a sudden one day it's like, see you later. It's one of those things, I, I, I believe I was a pleasant person to work with, but I don't know. <laughs> I think I was. I'm certainly not that much of a diva. I had my moments. I had my moments. By the way, Mark Spitz, the writer, uh, whose book Poser has been out a bit, uh, he was a writer for Spin Magazine, is, is my guest on the show today. And it's, it's interesting because when I interviewed him the first time, I got very into his book, uh, Poser, primarily because... He was living in New York at the same time I was in the mid-90s. At the same time that, you know, alt-comedy was sort of happening, you know, he was doing the rock thing, you know, going to, uh, to Dunhills and, and, and partying on that side of, uh, of the arts as I was uh, toiling away at uh, Luna Lounge on the Lower East Side. But we had a lot of the same friends and we lived close to each other. We probably walked past each other uh, you know, in our neighborhood. You know, he was strung out on what he was strung out on. I was strung out on what I was strung out on. But we just sort of missed each other. We, we even had the, uh, the woman who directed uh, and dramaturged my first show, Jerusalem Syndrome, off Broadway, was his manager. But we med- maybe we met once. You know, he came to my show. He, he told me that. But it was just interesting. To, to talk about New York at that time. You know, I lived in New York uh, 89 through 91, then 92 through 93. I lived in San Francisco and I was sort of commuting to New York. But in, in 94, I moved back full on. And that's when he sort of took off. And that's when, uh, you know, everything sort of changed comedically with the with the sort of uh, 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 arrival of, of what was the original alt-comedy rooms. But... Uh, it, it was an interesting time. Lower East Side, my friends. That's where it started. That's where I ran away from. The weird thing about New York City and the Lower East Side at that time, it was sort of the crashing of the wave, man. In 89, I mean, that all that heroin chic, you, you know, the, the, the not only the disco era, but the performance art era, the punk rock era, everything that had happened in the 70s took a while to die. And then a lot of people were just sort of crawling around like, you know, maggots in its corpse, you know, wearing the same outfits and trying to do the same things. But it wasn't quite the same, I, I don't think, as the 70s and early 80s. By 1989, it was really sort of done. And there was a whole new crew of people that were living the dream that had been there before them. And, uh, and then it got twice removed by the time the mid-90s came around. But in 89, 
the big transition, I think, for me was, I remember on the Lower East Side, I lived on second between A and B, and I was right next to a doorway that seemed to be a 24-hour, around-the-clock uh, heroin supermarket that I didn't know about. I was sober at the time. I didn't stay sober at that time. And uh, it was just crazy. It was menacing. It was dangerous. Uh, I, I didn't know what was going on on the block. There were people uh, on each end of the street, you know, keeping lookout. There was something going on in that doorway, and I just avoided it. Uh, I wasn't really that recovered, but I remember seeing junkies coming and going at all hours and thinking, like, do they know how fucked up they look? Do they know how fucked up they were, are? And then there was that one guy that I would see every day, and I'd think, like, well, that guy looks like he's managing okay. He seems to be okay. He just needs to be. It's like cigarettes. It's like coffee. That guy just needs his thing in the morning to get started. It just happens to be a, a dime bag or two of dope. And then I don't, I don't really know how his day went. I can't imagine he was being, uh, you know, that productive. Uh, but you know, there was that, there was that period, 89 to 91. And then of course, uh, I eventually made my way into that doorway, uh, at the end of that period of sobriety. I said, well, I got to try this out, see what's going on in that doorway. Got a couple of dime bags, snorted one. My face started itching. I sweated. I threw up and I thought, well, this isn't for me. Thank God, but I got to go. So I packed up all my shit and I got in my car and I drove to San Francisco to try to get back a girl and get back started again. All I remember is it was me and Todd Barry and Jeff Ross and, and Louie and Sarah Silverman and uh, that was, I feel like that was sort of the, Dave Attell, that was sort of the core group of people that were hanging out at the Kiev at three in the morning, you know, eating ice cream and, and, uh, and, and doing, you know, just being comics. And I remember a, a lot of walking around the Lower East Side with Todd Barry wondering why we couldn't get work. The marker of, of the end of the Lower East Side was really uh, Tompkins Square Park. I can't remember when the shit really went down, but it was almost like a tent city. The band shell was still there. And at some point, there were protests because they wanted to get all the squatters out of the Lower East Side, out of the buildings, out of, uh, out of the Tompkins Square. And there was a whole movement down there and protest to, to let people live like that and to let people uh, sort of uh, take the liberties of, 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 of squatting and, and, and keeping the park for the people. And then it's, at some point, you know, Giuliani's army just plowed the band shell down and moved the entire tent city God knows where and just leveled the whole goddamn thing. And now I'm not being nostalgic. I go back there and the heroin supermarket's gone. It's now a fancy restaurant where you can sit outside. I didn't even want to spend time walking down that street too much. It was menacing, man. You never knew what kind of shit you were getting into. And, you know, Luna's gone. It's now leveled. I don't even know if they built anything there. Now there's fancy restaurants. It's almost like they just bulldozed the history of rock and roll and performance art in New York. Just just plowed it under. There's no vitality to it anymore. I mean, it, it seems to be economically productive and there seems to be some good food around. And maybe those people that, that were once performance artists or, or people that lived that life have now grown up and it's behind them and they're walking around with... Uh, with baby carriages and whatnot. I don't know, but it seems like a lot of those people just disappeared, that that whole time in New York of uh, you know, whatever, that wave crashing from the, from the late 70s on through the 80s just sort of disappeared, that whole tone of New York, the whole grit of it. By the time the mid-90s came around, when I, when I got back and, and Mark Spitz was running around becoming a writer for Spin Magazine and doing his drug thing, there was still a lot of rock and roll, but at that time there was like second or third generation and of, of whatever that ghost was, of whatever Manhattan was, you know, back in the 70s. And uh, it, was a, it was an engaging conversation. We had to do it in two chunks because when I first interviewed Mark Spitz out here, I'd only gotten through half his book and I felt bad about it. So we did, the, we did that half. And then I finished his book and I met him in New York at, the, at a hotel and, uh, 
and we did the other half. So it's sort of a two-parter, but not quite. We're going back, man. We're going back to New York's Lower East Side, or New York in general. Late 80s, mid-90s. Going to talk to Mark Spitz. I enjoyed his book a lot. It's very specific, but it was very relatable to me. His trials and tribulations with his father, with drugs, and with New York City. It all resonated with me. And we kept missing each other. I swear to fucking God, he must have been right around the corner. Probably went to the same bodega. And also, I want to thank here everybody who was involved uh, in uh, Marin, the show on IFC, season two. I believe we premiere in June. No, May. May May-ish. May. And uh, I think we did 13 great episodes. And I really had a good time this time. And everybody I worked with was amazing. And... uh, I think I'm exhausted. I'm not sure. I got to go to work here in a few minutes and and finish it up. I'm going to try not to get too emotional. But uh, there's some amazing guest stars this year. A lot of people that I love uh, came out and either played themselves or played parts on the show. And and, uh, and I'm excited. Uh, and I'm also very excited, if you didn't know, that uh, Marin Season 1 is on Netflix and available to stream all uh, 10 episodes. And uh, why is my cat? Uh, why is my cat shitting on my rug? Can anyone ask? Can, can anyone tell me that? Why is my cat just taking dumps on my new rug? Does anyone have the answer to that question? I know you're thinking maybe the litter box doesn't. I don't know. No, I think he just thinks it's a yard, thinks it's grass. I guess that's what you get for being retro and cool and buying a shag rug is that your cat will think it's a yard and he will poop on it. Okay, let's talk to Mark Spitz. How do you receive, like, what do you do when you see a good review? Um, immediately dismiss it sure, and ignore it. Right, but as soon as you see a bad one, they're like, oh, they're right. And that, Yeah, and, <laughs> but, but I, used to, I used to get drunk and I used to contact the person and I used to tell them that I would, you know, find them and, sure, and sure. fuck them up. But, and, you know, but you never went the other way where you were like, well, what is this? Why, why don't you like me? Isn't that what it's about? I mean, like my the whole first episode of my TV show is about me tracking down a troll, and I and it, <laughs> and it sort of happened in real life. But I, if I really analyze what I was looking for, it was like let's try to negotiate yes, something. Yes, immediately a certain type of artist or a certain type of man will go to that. Like you, yes, me. Okay. I am one of those people. Okay. maybe you're one of those people as well. Where it's like, um, no, you have to get it. Yeah, you have to get. You're just not, or I'm nothing. <laughs> Right. Why are we nothing, Mark? I, you know, the, <laughs> the the thing is, like, you know, I, I saw this book, and I, you know, I'd seen your name around. I think I have your Jagger book that I didn't get to yet, but I, I heard good things about. It. And then this book comes out, Poser, which is by you, a memoir of downtown New York City in the '90s. And I was in New York City mm. in the late '80s, and you know, on and off throughout, you know, t- you know, till 2000. So I'm like, all right, so we got to have the same terrain here or something. And I just gravitated towards. You know, you with your sunglasses on and your Edie shirt. And I hadn't even read the book, but I'm like, I, I need to talk to this guy because I, I felt like there's got to be something I can identify with. And then I start reading the fucking thing and I'm about halfway done. And we're very similar in, in, the, in the engine region. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And I felt like, like I'm a fan of the show. Yeah. Like I listened to it. Right. And, and, um, it was one of the, uh, you know, you don't want you, a, a book publicist has to kind of have their own agenda. Yeah, you know, you gotta gotta let them do their right their thing. Right, you don't want to be like, I want to be on this and this and this and this. Right, but this was one of the the um one of the places I was like, well, I I think he might 
like it because we kind of covered a similar path through downtown Manhattan, maybe. Right. If we can get him to right. maybe open the book yeah. or, or, yeah, or yeah. look at the cover. Yeah. But no, but then I like, you know, three days ago, like I've been sort of like, I'm just so busy yeah. and I, and I'm like, I, I, I got to figure out, you know, where, where am I going to go with this guy? And then I couldn't put the book down, but not so much about downtown Manhattan. It, it was just about, you, you know, the sort of, you're, you're very candid about what a clown you were, but, but it was like, it, it, in the sense it was in retrospect that the way you frame yourself as a younger person yeah. wanting to be an artist, you have a certain point of reference now where it's sort of like, well, that was you know, ridiculous. That was infantile. That was, you know, you, you're analyzing and overanalyzing your younger self to the point where I started to feel kind of bad for him. But, <laughs> but the thing that resonated, resonated more with me than, than New York was this idea that, you know, we both grew up middle-class Jews, you know, our fathers, you know, have problems, yours is different than mine, but it was this fundamental lack of identity and need to con somehow finish, you know, building ourself, our sense of self. And you see it in other people in the city. Sure. Or you see it in dead artists. But who, that's, a, that's, a, that's a public identity that we romanticize. Yes. Yeah, and they become your friends and they become your, your almost like your teachers. Right, but but it's like but you you know Charlie like, Parker or people right. like you sure. know I remember seeing the Forrest Whitaker right as Charlie Parker right and I thought oh well it's, I didn't I didn't feel any of the pain nothing you know I right. just just like I want that I want to be like that but but we're I want to be a great artist where I walk in the room and someone's like oh birds in the room birds in the house you right know, or whatever right but 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 you're basing that like just by saying that about Charlie about about Forrest Whitaker you know not unlike me you're basing it on almost exclusively image. That, that, you know, it, it's like, you know, you read about this guy, you read about his life, and then there's this public yeah. mythology built around the guy. So you're connecting, like, for, you, Bukowski was one of your guys. Sure. You know, uh, Burroughs was one of your guys. Burroughs was one of my guys. Keith Richards was one of my guys. You know, that there are these there are these people. And then later in the book, you know, David Thewlis from... Uh, Naked. From, from, from Naked, which I resonated too. Like, you know, this like, I'm going to buy that shirt. You yeah. know, I'm going to buy that jacket. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And yeah, I, Johnny from Naked. And yeah. I did that. I mean, with anybody that, you know, I've got to put this thing together. But the irony, Mark, is that, and I'm assuming this is the same for you too. It's all about me, this interview. For, for some people, that's all there is. But I had that affliction or that liability, but I also was a really hard worker. So it's like, like I, I didn't even need it. Because I was already doing the work. I but was there was an insecurity there. Already trying to get much better as a writer. Right. And already given whatever modicum of talent I was given, if you have it, you know, if you right. have it. Right. So it was like a completely. So that's maybe why I was looking at it like uh, what an idiot I was in, in an affectionate way. Because like. No, it's definitely affectionate. I, I utterly think... unnecessary. Because I was still reading, you know, books and, and learning how to write and, 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 and taking my, my classes really seriously and, and got to New York. Got to New York not not just to to walk in the footsteps of Allen Ginsberg and Patti Smith and Jim Carroll and 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 um, but got to New York to be a better writer to to be exposed to the things people say on the street and be exposed to but also to live the life I mean the publishing it, world right you know and and but the way you frame it to in, live the life yes in the book that you know the, the really most of you know in, in terms of what you see yourself in retrospect or who you see that kid was was a kid that was hung up on living the life necessary to be a great writer put myself in the Chelsea Hotel and that's like half but that battle. was hilarious. Yeah. All right. So the, the the reason I really like this book is that it's very specific, but but 
to me because I relate to it so much. I'm like, all right, so this life, these these musicians, you know, this this idea of pursuing a, a life as an artist is a common one, and not not only is it common, but you and I have a lot of similar kind of uh, experiences around certain writers, and it seemed to all kind of. You, when you were growing up, you grew up on Long Island. Yeah. Five towns. My cousin's from Hewlett. I have some familiarity. My Jewish upbringing was in New Mexico. They got away from that. But I mean, what, you know, in that in that world, what were you fighting against at that time? Just the 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 fact that you could recognize someone by the car they drive. Yeah. It, just, it, it was like this sort of middle class, maybe upper middle class kind of uh, suburbia, but it it was really a small town with the sort of patina of upper middle class suburbia. It was really like there's Cheryl and her Seville, beep, beep, hi, Cheryl. Like sure. it was just so, it felt so small. Yeah. Cheryl, and, Sarah, yeah. Rachel, and, and none of the, Jill. Right, and none of them would fuck me. Yeah. Like none of them would, you know, they wouldn't get, they, it was a jock culture. But you also identify yourself as a Jewish American prince, which I don't feel like you no, no, essentially well, well, fall that, into that. Yeah, I was re- rebelling against that as well. Big time, right? I, I wanted to to know what it was like to, to be a... Uh, cooking a can of soup on a radiator in the Chelsea you, you know well, do you remember the first experience you had in identifying with that lifestyle yeah it was we were replicating it up at Bennington no but I mean before early on because oh. I, you know when you were a preteen or probably a junior high you know when was what was the moment where you're like you know that's where I'm gonna go being with my dad and going from racetrack to racetrack and seeing the beat down people you know I mean it it, it fucked me up and I kind of I, I'm on the fence in terms of I wish it didn't happen but at the same time it was definitely like a good window so your relationship with your father, your parents... See, it was the first time I ever saw anyone who, who didn't have all the money they needed. Right. Who didn't have, like, a guarantee that they were going to, like, fill the tank up. Right. Know? So your dad lived like that. He lived... He was a... Still is. Rambling, gambling. <laughs> really? <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> so so when... How old were you before your mother stopped putting up with that shit? She... She, I was like ten when when she keep fin- she finally kicked him out. And yeah. do you know the, the? Have you talked to her about the reasoning there? I mean, what was the the straw that broke the camel's back? Uh, yeah, my dad used to he used to smoke a lot of. Uh, yeah, I feel weird saying this in a public way, but I'm just gonna you know it's in the book. But he used to get high. You're gonna have to yeah. You're gonna have to accept that he might not like your book. <laughs> I wrote a novel called How Soon Is Never like ten years ago that fictionalized him. Yeah, and he didn't talk to me for a year. Yeah, see, my I'm, own father. Yeah, for a year of yeah. our lives. Yeah. Like, what, what do you think he's gonna say? You think he's read the book? Uh, I didn't. I didn't send it to him. I sent it to see, my mom. So back but to wait, your let's, question. But let's go to the specifics. Or how? What, how did he fuck you up? I mean, what do you right? Want? He would, so he would say your mother's a cunt and yeah. your mother fooled around on me. I'm 12 years old. I just want, you know, I want my like zits to clear up. Yeah, they, they want... should wait till you're at least 20 before yeah. they start dumping that shit on you. A cunt. Your yeah, mother's a, a cunt. cunt. Yeah. yeah. And did he say, Oh, really, daddy? What, you know, what, what, is she a cunt? <laughs> what is a cunt what, exactly? Why can't we go, go back to the baseball? Why can't we go see the Yankees again? Uh-huh. That's my mom a cunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. None of that. None of that. So, so you were in the middle of. There's something. really no having a healthy relationship with a woman ever again. After I mean, there's no. No, did you, you know. go? Did you ask your mother about it? No, I was terrified of even bringing it up. I just I shut it. I turned. You know. So was he a guy that drove? He drove a shitty car. He smoked cigarettes. He you know he's getting high. Ken Kings, yeah. And he's a, and he's a gambler, a compulsive gambler. But also that thing, and I don't know if you a really really good heart. Like really funny. Sure, we're all very sensitive. He's very charismatic. Yeah. Women yeah. loved him. I, I don't know. Like after a certain point, there's a number of rationalizations those good-hearted people make, where the the good heart idea kind of fades a bit. 
where you, you're like, yeah, he's got a good heart, but at some point he's got to take responsibility for this horrendous need that he has, right? Or or he could just have taken the the. You could be you could be a gambler. You can enjoy going to the racetrack. You can enjoy taking <laughs> drugs. Yeah, sure. But you still have to, and I only know this now that I'm in my 40s. Yeah. Like, you still have to be kind to people. Right. You can't hurt, you can't go out of your way to be selfish and hurt people. Yeah. And it seems like he was at the age that I am now, and he was going out of his way to, in a very selfish way, like, fuck with me. Yeah. And it worked. Right. And, um, and how did it work? What do you mean? Well, because, uh, you know, like trust issues and then seeing things that, like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't see, but then, but then seeing things that, that once I discovered Charles Bukowski reminded me of things I'd read in Bukowski. So then I went and did the 180 and thought, oh, well, my dad's pretty cool. Right. He's showing me this world and now I want to be a writer. And this world is much more interesting than, uh, uh, fucking Lawrence Hewlett, Cedarhurst, you know, and, and sure. Sure. And everyone wearing Benetton jerseys and driving BMWs. And wanting to 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 get uh, their little W letters on their so initially, what's interesting I think about that is that you know you were able to to sort of frame your your particular witnessing of of this element, and not until later uh, fall victim to your own compulsions. That you know you <laughs> I didn't become him. I yeah. probably became worse than him in a in a way. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. I did worse drugs. I, I think I went to heroin. Just to outdo the to, old man. Yeah, you got to win. You I was like, win. he's a pussy. Yeah, like, I, he only did coke. Like, I'm going to do heroin. I don't, I don't know if there's any winning. And, 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 and New York City, I think, comes into it, too, because he, I, I started to, as a, as a teenager, and this is like the, starting to get into like the late 80s, so you've got like bands like Sonic Youth and, and um, uh, Pussy Galore, and, and you've got like, like New York is just starting to get, like I, start, I started to see that his New York was sort of becoming cheesy. And, and, he, and you grew up in his New York. He, like showed, he was the first person to ever take me to Greenwich Village. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what what was his thing? I but mean, he what would did show he me like Eighth Street. He'd show me the poster mat. And, and the poster and, mat was important. And he'd show me uh, no, but I'm saying he'd show yeah. me Washington sure, Square Park, sure. and we'd yeah. go to Ray's Pizza, and we'd we'd like traipse around. Um, and he saw Charlie Barnett and Charlie fucking Charlie Barnett. Yeah, I, dude, Charlie Barnett. I know Charlie Barnett. Yeah, Charlie. I, I was like that. That Charlie Barnett is bigger than my dad, and this is a New York that this is an this is someone who's. Bigger than anyone I've ever seen before. And how old were you when you first saw Charlie? Thir- 12, 13, See, that's maybe? a big moment. And people don't realize this, that Charlie Barnett was a stand-up comedian who who primarily played Washington Square Park. There was a couple in of the guys- fountain, in, in the fountain. In the fountain, yeah. There was yeah. a couple guys that could do it. Him and Rick Avilas were the guys that yes. could do it. You know, and Avilas made a break earlier than Charlie. And Charlie would just, you know, he'd build an audience and he'd just push it to the wall. And you were among the people that- And he was a crackhead and a disaster. But, you know, he could hold an audience. Like sometimes three or 400 people yeah. would, would gather yeah. around Charlie Barnett to see him do his shtick and you saw that as a 13 year old many times and, and but just to look at charlie too the intensity and the, yeah. you know the, the and he would stalk like he yeah stop like back and forth yeah like yeah. kind of like chris rock like on right you know, right like maybe chris rock picked up some of that or something. a lot of people picked up something yeah. from charlie yeah and then how did that affect you i thought like like i can't go back to long island i can't go back <laughs> to to where the people yeah where this this man yeah doesn't exist won't play yeah you know what i mean like i want this yeah i didn't realize that like he was just bound for like literally literally the the yeah very short probably very painful and you know well he did the one movie did dc cab i met him again did he really he he almost 
the the legend is that he almost, almost got SNL. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that legend holds. But I, when I first came to LA in the late '80s, you know, he was here uh, briefly, mm-hmm. and um, you know, trying to make a break. And I, I remember talking to him then, and then he died. And you know, he had a profound effect on Chappelle and you know some other people. It, it, you know, he used to do clubs here and there, but you know, he was just erratic and had a bad drug problem. Yeah. But I know what you're saying. There was a grit to it all. So you need to get out of Long Island, <laughs> and and what you know when? Did, but the poster mat, the, you know these like the landmarks that you talk about were like that. When I used to go visit my grandmother in New Jersey and take the bus into New York, I'd go to those places. Colony Music in Times Square was another thing. Yeah, Colony Music. Yeah, that I used to do. But the poster places were fucking. Insane. I don't mean to. The poster mat was great. It was yeah. exciting. And, yeah, and and it was like um and and Flip was right across the street, and there was like right. unique on Lower Broadway. Right, it was like desperately seeking Susan time in the city. I don't like think. Pe- kind of- I think that's why I love the book. Is I don't think people really understand let's say experience the sort of hold that new york can have you know this particularly at this point in time where things sort of were changing you know on your psyche it was like really the last sort of gasp of of new york as being you know gritty and inspiring and, and and everything else and the junkies were just by the time you got down there to live that was almost coming to an end almost i i've been really lucky in my life um getting in on the very tail end of things whether it's that new york that yeah. like new york that's not that far removed from max's kansas city and and basquiat and right and um performance even cbgb's and, and even like right. like that right like like um you know i'm 43 like i got i was i was, I was like a teenager i didn't get to see the clash at bonds right but i got to see like other things that were like sort of in that right the equal is important. Y- yeah. Maybe G.G. Allen. Right. Or... or <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've got uh, the clash, tail end clash of that. Clash of bonds. I got the <laughs> shitty end of that deal. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Um, and the same thing later on in the book with the music industry. You know, yeah. I got in in 97. There was still a shit ton of money there. There right. were parties. They right. would fly you to... to, to foreign countries none of that happens now well let's talk about bennington a bit and then we'll get up to speed because like you really lean like there's something about the mythology and what bennington the college represented to you that that you still you revere it at least throughout the entire half of the book that i just read that there was something about the idea of bennington that defined you and that and and that you know you held on to what was it well for 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 two reasons primarily one is that it was my, my way out as you know it was my way off the island and I never really went back ex- except to like show up on my parents doorstep what is Bennington what what was it's it? a at the time it was like it's it, it was the most quote-unquote most expensive college in the country it was like it's like sort of like that's what was it's yeah. known for but it's really just a really good liberal arts college in southern Vermont and it was like uh uh Jill Eisenstadt and Brett Easton Ellis yeah. and Donna Tartt had all just come out of there and they right. were publishing these big books. Yeah. So that was kind of where I, I mean, I got into Sarah Lawrence, I got into Bard, I got into Hampshire. I was, I did the rant the whole game. Did you only apply to girls' schools? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what the fuck? I wanted to meet girls. Okay, all right. <laughs> Right. It had a real uh, reputation sure. at the time. Yeah. And, and largely because of Brett Ellis. Right. Rules of Attraction had just come out. Right. And that, that was, he calls it Camden, but it's really Bennington. Yeah. And um, and Lesson Zero had come out. Right. Like before that. I like that book. And American Psycho came out while I was at Bennington. So uh-huh. he was like, you know, that was like. That was the model yeah. for you. You know, you had your heroes in place. But and you had you- teachers there who were published and you had their sort of their sort of winking like you come here and maybe maybe you can get an agent you can get published and like it was like four people who wanted that right and i already wanted that right i wanted to see a book 
with my name on it. That was my goal. You're surrounded by these mountains. You've got like, uh, I think, 600 students. You know, you're a virgin. Yeah. Half of the half of the guys are gay. Yeah. So you're going to get laid like every, you know, you know yeah. you're going to form that you're going to turn into basically this monster that you've always wanted to be. <laughs> Thank and God then, for college. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then you get the, the whispers. It starts with a whisper, but it's like, oh, someone's got heroin. Yeah. Heroin's coming. It's coming. You know, like someone's gets gay. But what led up to that? I mean, I mean, there were like when I was in college, I mean, you know, uh, ecstasy just came on the scene towards the end. But you had pot, you had, you know, coke you, yeah. and you sort of go through it that but you but you have to be specific in, in when I'm talking to you in that you aspired to be a drug addict. Yeah. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I didn't want to to hide behind like some like, oh, it's hereditary or, oh, I, you know, well, it might be, but I'm, still, I'm, I'm sure it is. All it I wanted is. to do when I was 10 was smoke cigarettes. Yeah. No, I wanted to be, <laughs> I want to be. Yeah. I, I went for it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there was this weird line when when someone first tied you off that, you know, you were like, you still had an aversion to needles, at least early on. And the Coke was so good in New York. And I remember that shit. They sold it next to where I live. When you got to New York, I was living next to where you were scoring. I lived on second between A and B, you know, right next to that fucking doorway, you know, yeah. just up from B. Yeah. And, you know, there was, you know, that the, those Mexican dudes. Sometimes they're like, keep moving, keep moving, keep right, moving. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's hot. Because yeah. it's hot out. Because right, right. the cops are out. Right, that and guy. And then they're sometimes like, what do you need? Right, And right. they sold coke and heroin in the same spot. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah. See, if I had known that. But I went there, I was sober for the first time, and I ended up starting to snort heroin. Yeah, I heard I you leave. say, you said that on, on one of your shows. I heard you say that, and I thought I made the connection. Yeah, but that I was, was like, where oh, it was. That, that maybe that's the same spot. Well, was, yeah, but it was a yeah. very popular spot. <laughs> and like, then, but didn't it seem like just like literally someone like sounded an alarm and everyone was doing it? Like everyone was like everyone was on it and everyone was winking at each other. Well, I think and that it was, was what it was primarily because of that the shift in the quality of heroin that I think once they realized that you know they could put out uh, you know a, a high quality product that young middle class kids could snort <laughs> and and you know the stigma of the needle was gone. Right. Then like once guys like you figured out like this shit is so good that you don't have to shoot it. It was like, there's a whole new market. Like, everybody can do this. I guess it, it's that the Annie Hall line where he's like, it makes a white woman feel more like Billie Holiday. Sure. And she wants to smoke pot. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it is kind of that. Like, it is a cliche. And you're probably right. It comes down to marketing at the end of it. Well, it just came and down. And I was a victim of, I was a, a, a target targeted market. Right. You were a I kid. I take it seriously. I thought yeah. it was like this personal, painful trip. Right. But really, I was just marketed to. In a way. And, and it was the zeitgeist. It was a quality thing. Yeah. yeah. The reason why heroin made it to Bennington is because you didn't need needles anymore. I mean, the difference between, you know, the brown tar shit out here and, you know, the, the fact that you actually processed that shit or knew how to process it so you wouldn't have to fucking shoot it was baffling to me. You know, that you could smoke it or you could break it down. And yeah, you, no. And here, when I was doing it here, because, you know, there's a whole chapter in the book about Hollywood. And, yeah. And, um... You'd like cook it up on on a frying pan and then chop it up and snort it. Yeah, I just I didn't want to get AIDS. Right, I mean, that was the thing about the needles. Is yeah, that I was just terrified of getting. But you weren't afraid of the the you you already accepted that being strung out is being strung out. I mean, my fear of needles was more around the idea that like I know very few people that come back from that, uh, you know, in any full on way. That once a needle relationship begins, you know, it's it's very hard to fucking come back from that. Um. I think I, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to admit this, like even like in, in therapy, and much less like in something that people are going to hear. But like, I think that I just wanted to say that I shot up, Yeah, you know? Sure. And it's, and, and also, and I don't want to say this in a way that's going to encourage anybody, but it's a killer 
killer clock. <laughs> it feels so fucking good when you shoot up. I mean, it just really? does. You you know the difference. Like it's that train spotting thing where yeah, he yeah. just falls through the floor, right? And the floor disappears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's real. Yeah, you know. So in the Villa Carlotta, yeah, like uh, over over in um, Franklin Franklin Village. Yeah, you know, I fell I fell through the. I, yeah, that and feeling. that was it. Yeah, not so much at Bennington the first time because I was just—I think I was just scared and the adrenaline. Well, I think that's what balances your character and probably why you're still alive is that you know there was a there was a, a, a self awareness to the whole process. I think that the fact that you know a lot of the reason you were doing this was just to live the life that you thought was necessary in order to be the artist you wanted to be. Yes. That kept you in check. Not in luck. I, I think luck. Sometimes yeah. you know some people just die. And they're not. Oh lucky. yeah, yeah. And they're just yeah, dead. Yeah. And they were doing yeah. the same thing that I was doing. Yeah. Just a bad mistake. First time. Up in the morning, and we would hear. We would read in the post, New York Post, the same shit that we were the same. You know, they used to stamp them with little brands, sure. so we would know which what it was that killed the dude. Tango and cash. Yeah. Or I, bad lieutenant. Or yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. You know, we yeah. would know. Oh, we did that, and then we would yeah, feel yeah. real cool. Like yeah, oh, yeah. Fuck that guy. He died. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Did yeah. it. Yeah, we, we lived. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the fucking thing. Our dicks are bigger than that guy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that was a bit I used to do is that like for everyone, whenever that, <laughs> whenever that, that news story came out that that shit was killing people, there were a bunch of junkies on the Lower East Side going, where are they selling it? That's got to yeah. be good. Yeah. That's got to that be was clean. Me. I was that dickhead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about the art of it though, because you know, when you're at Bennington, you said you worked hard, but I mean, you were building this, this identity for yourself and, and doing everything you could. So you're at Bennington, you're writing, you're writing poetry. Uh, I started writing poetry. I had an agent when I was like, 20 i mean i i was in I, new was, york it, no yeah but i was still a student at bennington i had a novel that was I, I my plan was for it to come out and i would never have to work a day job and it would be <laughs> what? that was the, this is the amazing the thing guy. about about writing about your confidence around this like your 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 reaction to your insecurity and how inflated you got gave you a confidence that i never had i never ever assumed that this would be the ticket out of anything i appreciate that about you that you had this fucking first novel you know based on you know your amplified pain and identity yeah and you thought like this is it yeah and it was it I had a great um thesis tutor philip lopey who like really respected yeah um uh, writer and editor and i thought i would be next i thought it was like brett ellis jelizes that donna tart and i thought i would be next and yeah it, it, i was not i'm still not next i'm still waiting to you know yeah but like i thought yeah man this is gonna happen and and this is the reward for 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 being 19 and moving into the chelsea hotel Let's talk about that because again, this is you nineteen what nineteen eighty nine nineteen eighty. So, so the mythology of the of the Chelsea is you know uh, you know uh, 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 Dylan Thomas, Sid and Nancy, yeah. Dylan, like it, it, Leonard Cohen, right, right. But but that's sort of done, and all you got left is Herbert Hunk and Didi Ramone. Didi Ramone is still there. Sorry. Herbert Hunk is still alive. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's still a shithole. It's still you know. But like, you had to live there. I had to, that was where yeah that was where I had that was where you go yeah you know and so every poem I wrote at the time I could say well I wrote that in the Chelsea Hotel even if it was a piece of shit poem which I'm sure it was and nobody stopped me nobody but, but, sat me down and said man what the fuck are you tell doing me, tell me about the, the whole know? process they of- paid for it my grandparents paid for it I got because I had a, an internship at the kitchen do you remember the kitchen sure yeah was that the one that was like upstairs? It felt like a living room, or was that actually a place called the living room? Was there no, a that was no, the kitchen was like a big where like, indu- like okay. an industrial. Do you space. know what I'm talking about? Some woman ran a performance space. At, yeah, I was think at the, a loft. 
Yeah, I think that was in so so maybe yeah, Soho. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Kitchen yeah. was like in, in at the time they started in Soho, but at the time they'd moved to like the far like where the High Line is. So now. your first your first venture into New York was that you know you, you'd written some poems, you'd written your your novel, yeah. and you're on an internship at the Kitchen, and you know you decide you got to live at the Chelsea and During, you, you for talk, the winter of '89 into or for the winter of '88 into '89. And you, you talk your practical Jewish grandparents into paying who for just this. paid. I don't know, probably at the time, like 25 grand for Bennington. And then they're like, wait, you're not at Bennington. I'm like, oh, it's a not resident. It's a non-residential semester. What? They're like, what? <laughs> what is we that? go out and we, we learn how to be artists in, the, in our, in our, and they're like, wait, we just, we just signed up. We just sent them a check. For- yeah, yeah. It's a tough sell. Tough I'm sell. like, no, I'm not there. And I got to fill like three months in the yeah. middle of the winter. <laughs> All right. So you go to the Chelsea. Tell me about this. Don't walk me through that. I'm ter- like I'm terrified. You're 19. I'm terrified. I think someone's going to jump me. But in no, the- but you're 19, 19 and you old. go in and you you want you had heard. Oh, that- I heard that Stanley Bard gave uh, uh, discounts to people. He would trade a, uh, uh, a room for like a painting if you were a painter, or uh-huh. if he liked your art, mm-hmm. he would. He, he was a very. He was a what do you call it? Like a, a patron. Right. Right. He was the manager. He was the the manager at the time. Um, and so I had a meeting with him and I sat down with him and, and he's like, so what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a writer. And he's like, what do you write? And I'm like, oh, poetry. He's like, oh, I'd like to read some of your poems. Yeah. And I'm like, really? Yeah. You know? And and my, the whole time I'm there, I'm trying to like, I'm waiting for him to like, just basically say, uh, you know, welcome you know <laughs> like you're you've made it you know what i mean like whatever it is i'm gonna i don't even you, know what i wouldn't even know okay. i wouldn't even know right. what success is yeah. i'm you gonna know? give you leonard cohen's old right. room yeah. that's how much i like right you. Yeah. and one day you're gonna have a plaque outside <laughs> and, yeah. when and you you're, the next, yeah. you're the next you're the next you know course. just of course yeah and of course he said none of that but he had to, he did end up giving me a little bit of a break on the room and, uh-huh. and you know my grandparents if, if i told them that i got like 20 dollars off they of course that that was success and they would pay they paid for it you know it was a bargain how was your first night there i i i um just i slept in my clothes because i was afraid someone was going to break the door down and rape me or fucking kill me or i didn't i didn't know i was just <laughs> yeah. like if i make it through the night yeah and i see the sun come up yeah and i spend one night in the chelsea hotel yeah, yeah. then the second night in the chelsea hotel can't be as hard yeah because there's a context yeah and then by the end of the week, I'm going to be sure living. I'm going to be a Chelsea girl. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Living in the Chelsea. But you, but you and look- that's exactly what happened. By the end of the, t- I was taking cabs with with friends just so I could be like, oh yeah, Chelsea Hotel. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and they drop me off and like they, you know, they wave me because they used to lock the door at night. They'd have to buzz you yeah, in. Yeah, and um, and there was something you know. I mean, I I write about it in a way that, like you said, I, I make myself like sort of the. The, the the butt of the joke but there was also something beautiful about it i mean it was this gorgeous old building where so much oh, yeah. art was yeah, was sure. made and 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 it and now they've like fucking gutted it i don't know if you've seen it but they're turning it into like shitty condos or, really? or whatever they're turning it into i've been there. i'm not assuming they're going to be shitty but it's not going to be it's not going to be what it was there yeah. were the things that were there yeah for people like me yeah and people like you to hold on that to. i think are i'm not even sure they're they're even available. If but, you I mean, come did, to New York now and you and, and you wanted to do what you wanted to do and I wanted to do what I wanted to do, where where would we even go? No, I think you arguably- You go to Ludlow Street, that's for sure. No, no, you can't go anywhere. I mean, I think arguably what, you know, all of that stuff, 
you know, that you were there at the tail end of it. Yeah. It's fucking over, dude. And yeah. that's why I'm, it's all it's, gone. It's all American paralyzed now. Yeah. And it's all restaurants and yeah. it's all like and all it's the safe and it's fucking completely safe. safe. All yeah. the people that used there's to no be, risk. Well, there's no, you can't, people who work in the city can't even afford to live no. in the city. T- Tulsa, Oklahoma is New York now. Anywhere is New York now. The internet is New York now. You don't have to go to New York to be in New York now. I guess what I'm trying to get at in this, in talking to you is that, you know, there, that, that, that feeling of wanting to hold on to that. You know, of wanting to live that way, you know, against the momentum of, of where culture was going. Even when you talk about your roommate with the hypertext business, I kind of remember that bullshit too. Yeah, he was really into DJ Spooky. Yeah. And, uh, but that wasn't the, that wasn't what, you know, what resonated with us. So when did you, like, you started taking the hits. I mean, you had this big dream and you, and you moved to New York with your novel, you know, at some point. When did you realize you were just, you know, turning into a strung out person who was holding on to a dream, you know, versus, you know, on the brink of something? Um, I got like dropped by my agent. That's what I was after. Yeah. It didn't happen. And I found myself in Hollywood and that didn't happen either. Like that didn't happen in a so much, so much more humiliating way because, you know, it, it, there's so much more at stake, you know, going to, um, uh, meetings at studios and and things like you know like trying to trying to to um, we followed a chick out here yeah i followed i followed my my girlfriend at the time uh zoe out here and and, and you I lucked figured, out because i her... figured i would be a you know her father was like a, a famous composer yeah uh right and um he did the score for like robocop and the blue lagoon and they had a big house out in encino and she went she yeah. wanted to be in a she was in a band and and we were all just sort of you know, trying to make it in, in Hollywood. And, and I, I just like so many things that sort of got close to happening and then didn't end up happening. And I, I was doing theater on the Lower East Side. And, and um, I realized there was nothing there. I had nothing but that. I was a, an empty person and I was strung out most of the time. And when that didn't happen, and that's all that I ha- wanted to have happen was to be a, a great writer. I was basically like this like cipher of a person pushing 30. Right. And then I got, I just got lucky. I got hired at spin and I got lucky. I just got, I just got lucky. You know, you, I went from working in a bookstore and selling other people's books, working at Shakespeare and company on lower Broadway. So you uh, went back after LA. Yeah. I went back and, and I, you, I, I went into rehab. I got humbled. I guess I got, um, was that the last of it? No, <laughs> not even close. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So so it was. But it was. It was. Um, it was around the time that Giuliani was cleaning elected yeah. and cleaning up. And for some reason, like I, I got to be friendly with this actress, Adrienne Shelley. I don't know if you knew her. I went to college with her. Yeah, that horrible fucking yeah. story that is. Yeah, yeah. I still go sit sometimes with when I'm feeling sorry for myself. I go. There's a little park in uh, Abington Square across from where she was killed and there's a little plaque and I go sit and you know, anyway. She, yeah, she was a sweetheart. You know, there there are some things that, that that help me start to figure it out. Right. You know, and she was one of the, those people. When you went to rehab, so like, so you're out in LA and you know, how, how bad, how bad did that get? I mean, were you shooting that tar or what? <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, I was shooting it and, it, but it was also like, um, I was I was wandering around, walking, getting into cars with strange people because I thought they had drugs. You know, things like I was doing things that, like you know, you end up on the side of the road. You know, doing 
You do things that you shouldn't be. You and, know. This, and LA can be the loneliest fucking place in the world. Yeah, you know, especially when you're out there just walking. Yeah, and, and isolated. I, it's not New York. New York's like a big friend. I thought being an ex junkie was cool. Like I thought being like like that. That I, in 1982, the first time I gave up heroin, I listened to there was a song about that Fishbone did called like pray to the junkie maker or something yeah, like that yeah. and i thought oh man yeah man all that shit's behind me you know and it's like i thought like i thought like like i, I just had i was a person who who developed this like pathological attachment to identities that weren't really mine no i, I get it i get yeah. it but it, but it's, and when one of them was was being clean also you know sure sure like and, i rose above it now yeah. I, I got a story to tell yeah or just you know i just do a marijuana yeah. maintenance or just have a couple yes. of coffee. well but but and now i'm just trying to be myself because i think what you did here for me anyways as a guy who's reading your book was that you gave a voice to something that i thought was was very specific and and almost unique to the point where i didn't want to talk about it and and you talked about it yes which is that you know, th there, there's a, an ongoing heartbreak of the feeling of never being able to accept yourself or fit in. Now, and 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 sort of like moving through identities like a like a fucking hermit crab moves you, through yeah, shells. Even at Spin, which was literally the first time I saw my name in print. Literally the first time someone gave me money to write. Literally the first time I got I was writing things that got the attention of of other agents, and I started writing books. Yeah, I wasn't myself. I became my byline. I became what I thought Nick Kent or Lester Bangs would be. Yeah. You know. Uh, so you still couldn't. You were, you, still... you were in Almost Famous. Like that was like I right. took I took my cue from like from that. Right. You know, for like I wanted to. Uh, uh, most of the people there would like go, go to Subway for lunch and sit in the, in the conference room. Yeah. And and talk about old Neil Young records. Yeah. Whereas I would go out and do like speedballs with rock stars. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted right. to be that guy, the one guy on staff who is like Gonzo. Yeah. Living it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Like I got a story. Yeah. You know, you just went to the concert. And and no fucking rock star is more badass than me. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to drink what you a, under what, the table. And I did drink them all under the fucking table. What a prize that is. <laughs> <laughs> and she, <laughs> it's so like, that's the second half of the book. All right. Well, that's good. But and then, well, and then the end of it, the resolution is to fi just finally, finally, finally try and just, just let and it's the scariest thing in the world it's the fucking scariest thing in the world to not to not know at almost 40 who you are who you are what kind of man you are and knowing kind of that and you start to feel you, you know you're, you're you're half halfway done yeah you know i was on a, a plane coming back from austin and you know turbulence can't bring a plane down mm -hmm. right but it feels like it can bring a plane. I, I, dude, every, I travel constantly. Yeah. And, and during takeoff, when the noise changes, I'm like, well, this is it. This, yeah. is, uh, this is how I'm going to go. So there was one. and I was, fucking sky. I was, I was like, I, I, this is it. This is how I'm going to die. It's going to be plane crash. And I thought, I don't know who's dying. Oh, really? I, I don't know who's, 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 what, wh who's being lost here. Sure, sure. And that was the moment where I knew that I needed to, to uh, change it's fucked up. It's fucked up to 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 be to to feel like you're gonna die and not even know like right who who are they gonna bury right. you know who are they who is that person right not know yourself at all. You, you do know one thing, right? Is that you know there there's some part of you that is so afraid of everything that you, <laughs> that you didn't you know let that guy live right. Like a lot of guys who do fucking smack and a lot of guys that, that, that push the envelope, like for me, and I don't know if you had this, 
when I started doing drugs and living that life and aspiring to being an alcoholic or a drug addict, yeah. I always thought like, well, if I ever lose my mind, then I got to pull back. Like there's this line and then one day you're like, I'm, I crossed the line. I'm in a hotel room with pirates and someone stole my <laughs> shit. And you know, what's, what, how am I different than these fucking people that I thought I had one? I'm not an artist anymore. I'm a drug addict. Yeah. But, but it's somehow or another, you, you've met guys that have killed that part, that have killed themselves without dying. I started I started to realize how much I was fucking up my career too. You know, I mean um I mean uh some of the plays that I wrote like I did a play called Shyness is Nice that got to Aspen. Yeah. HBO flew us out to that workspace they had on Melrose sure, for a while. We sure, did yep. the the dance for them a mm-hmm. couple of times, mm-hmm. and and I wouldn't take my fucking sunglasses off in the room, and I got drunk the night before, and I did all these things that like were just like that things that that guy would do. What that, do you know why? I mean, do you know why you made that decision? I mean, was it still a romanticization the, the, of your heroes? Now or I think that I did it so that I could become so I could. I think if they gave me a TV show and all this money 10 years ago, I would be absolute. I would be dead. I would yeah. use it to blow my fucking brains out somehow. Yeah. Like I just would. Right. Because that's what I wanted to do. Right. Like that's what I wanted it for. Did you, you know? really want it though? I mean, were you really, I mean, you don't. I didn't, like, you know, I, that's the other thing too is deep down and I look back at it now and I don't know if you have things that, that, that you, that are similar in terms of what you created at the time, but maybe I deep down thought it was good. It was good. It yeah. was probably better than most other people out there, but right. it wasn't. But you still hated. Yeah, yeah. You still beat yourself up about it because I find that because I could do better because right. it wasn't good enough, and I'll, clearly it wasn't good enough because it wasn't successful. You know, they didn't buy it. You know, right? But you thought that you know just by your behavior, I, you were you're somehow protecting yourself against disappointment by being a douchebag. Yeah, I will give them an out for not buying it. Right. So that no one has to point out the fact that it wasn't good enough. We could blame it on the sunglasses I wore, sure, or the fact sure. that I was hungover. Right. Fact, sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but I'm. But I, I regret it. I regret it. I do. I regret it because I would have a lot of money right now, or if maybe, maybe it'd be all gone. You yeah, know, maybe. And I regret it just because I, I, you know, because 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 I have a lot of regret. I mean, that's kind of what I, you know. So what what now outside of this memoir? I mean, you, you wrote a book on Bowie. You wrote a book on Jagger. You've written plays. You've written these shows. You, you know, you do all right for yourself, right? Um. Yeah, I mean that's this is my like uh, seventh book. I'm working on another one. I, I'm I'm um, got a bunch of other stuff, you know that that I'm I'm working on. There's a the, a novel that I wrote called How Soon Is Never that um, is about these two people who try and reunite the Smiths. There's there's shit going on. I mean, it's yeah. not, not as not as much as you got going on, but you know, dude, I'm I'm just hanging on. I, I, you know, it's <laughs> like I'm in the middle of this thing, and the only thing that I'm happy about is like you know I I do have you know a certain amount of of sobriety, and I and I do have a you know, like some, somewhere in the last few years, I landed in myself, you know, where like I think what I was going to tell you just in, in, in terms of encouragement is that, you know, age and and, and a certain amount of exhaustion, uh, you know, forced me to eventually, for, you know, about 80 percent accept myself. Uh, you know, I, I think sobriety helped. But I mean, you know, I didn't anticipate it ever happening, but I no longer... You know, like, okay, so I bought Red Wing boots and, you know, I felt like I was the first to do that. But apparently, you know, <laughs> they're around. You know, I, I, I still fall victim to this idea. Like, I finally got an authentic pair of pants uh, that no one else has. And I'm gonna, but, but for the most part, I don't have the energy that I once did to, to put myself through that fucking... Yeah, age, age, will, age will do it. But what do, what do you get from your parents? Is your mom still around too or no? 
Yeah, my mother is around. She thinks the book's hysterical. She she doesn't. She's like, it, it was hard for me to read the drug parts. Yeah, that know. guy. I just got that too. I yeah. had my mother's like. Well, there's some things as a mother I didn't like, yeah. but as a person who read the book, I yeah. Liked. I thought the end. I like the ending. The ending was good. <laughs> there are too many references I didn't get, so it's not going to sell. That's what she said to me. You know, it's for, as far as <laughs> you got to throw that as, in. Yeah, as far as like the albums that I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah she's she's been she's been supportive, and and the the the, the father. I'd, you know, he I interviewed him for it. You know, I did that David Carr thing where I went back to 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 people, uh, and said, uh, "You mind if I talk to you for twenty minutes about this period?" Because I, I did a, like a little a little reporting, you know, because I'm still a journalist. Um, not so much that it overshadowed it, but 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 the old man I interviewed, and he he didn't really get a sense of what I was doing or with the stuff. You know, he he thought maybe it was for another piece. He would call me and say, "Well, is it out yet?" Yeah, yeah. You just hope they forget, but they never yeah. do. There's a weird bit of memory, you know, that 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 dads have, where you like he can't remember that. They they remember shit that's just fucking like, and it's always the most worst, vulnerable, hateful shit. <laughs> yeah, and you would, and they're they're they're. St- I mean, he he's still there. I haven't been able to shake him off. You know, he's still there, he's still there. But aside from that, uh, regrets. I mean, do you do you do you have them? Yeah, my my ex girlfriend Lizzie says that I'm addicted to regret. She says that I I do things so that I can regret them. Yeah, you know, like like uh, I don't know that that's uh, that that you know that might just be something you say like to your ex boyfriend. I don't know. If, well, do you ever say if I had done this or if I should have done that? The 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 40s are weird. The 40s are the 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 time when you start maybe. Well, that's going to be your key into fucking the last piece, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, the the so, you may not be able to shake your resentment, but if you can forgive yourself and and not regret, uh, then you you kind of that's a ticket into it. You have to start thinking about shit like that at at my age, and and I've just started. Yeah, regret because yeah. it's it's a because the party's you, over. Well, yeah, it's useless. <laughs> regret is useless. It it serves no purpose. And I don't have religion, so I don't have I that don't out. Well, you got the Jew thing, but you're but not. That's just cultural. No, I get it. That's just Lenny Bruce. Sure, and you know, sure, man. That's not or our our idea of Lenny Bruce. Yeah, coming to him thirty years after he died. Sure, I get it. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> the, that's not the, the picture you know. of Lenny Bruce. The, yeah, the mythology of Lenny Bruce. Yeah, um, and that would make things easier. Yeah. I think if it was there, if I could, you know, even yoga don't have it. You know. It's Buddha, not, not going to do it. Yeah. No, it's not going to do it. No, I think what what it really comes down to, and it's so fucking simple, <clears throat> and it's just very flat, and it's very, it's very, it's incredibly simple. It's just self acceptance, and it's so fucking retarded to think like, yeah, well, that's easy to say, yeah, yeah but oddly, you know, the, the 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 switch is just sort of like, well, that was the life I lived. And you know, I made some mistakes. Uh, you know, I apologize where necessary. You know, I probably hurt myself a bit, but you know, nothing's gonna fucking change that. Yeah. And 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 on some level, it, you know, it got me to where I am now, and I, you know, I'm still alive and I'm doing okay. I b- I b- I'm gonna take your word for it. I believe you. The energy in here is very good. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, man. There's no, and I've been in places where the energy has been not so good, so I can tell the difference. You know. The the hardest thing is that forgiveness element. I mean, do you forgive your father? No. Yeah. No, it's not hard. yet. But I would like to. It's hard, right? I would like to. I sometimes I think it would be easier if he was just dead. Yeah. You right. Know? Oh yeah. Yeah. They just keep going. The narcissists. I, pl- I plan. Fuck, hard like, to kill I plan going to the funeral. You know, just 
he's I could forgive him if he would die. Let's talk about okay. So you wrote the book on the LA punk scene. Yeah, you did we a got book. the neutron bomb was was with Brendan Mullen who passed away. That was an oral history. That was like the West Coast version of Please Kill Me. Right. You wrote these two big biographies of Bowie and and Jagger. Were those contract deals or was that your interest? Yeah, the, it was a little bit of both. I mean, Bowie obviously huge uh, 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 fan, and um, and it was great to just meet you know these people and hear these stories from the the, the kind of Warhol people who hung around with him in the early days mm-hmm. to like um, just people who made music with him, you know, Carlos Alomar and, and yeah. people like that. But those books were you know those those books were. were part, Did you talk to Bowie? part paycheck books no yeah. they were write arounds you yeah. know they were like you know i didn't talk to mick jagger i didn't talk to david bowie did you what in the in the in the research what what did you find out that that you know that really resonated with you like as a guy who worshiped the guy well that was that was the thing is that that like um you get to see them as you get to see them a little bit more because you live with them, you, mm-hmm. if you're bi- writing a biography of someone, you kind of live with them. You get to see them a little bit more as as just people, mm-hmm. you know. And then and then Bowie was like out of the public eye while I was writing the Bowie book, mm-hmm. and he'd been sick. Mm-hmm. So I got to sort of see uh, a little bit of, of um, when I would hear stories about people who interacted with him and how he w- wanted to quit smoking, but he couldn't quit smoking. I got to see like a man, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, as I feel opposed that. to this, mm-hmm. as opposed to this fucking Didi, right. you know, who 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 was like basically like the mo- single one of the best and probably the most interesting rock stars who who, who ever, ever lived yeah ever lived you know yeah. the jagger thing was that was more of like me being uh, the, again that was like we're going to pay you got a little flack for that. did you you got some flack for it right for the, for the jagger yeah because uh, people thought it was like an answer book to to the keith richards book which it totally fucking wasn't yeah. i mean i love that keith richards book Great. and i love keith richards yeah. and i wasn't like but I thought, okay, if they're going to pay me money to do this book on Mick Jagger, I don't want it to be like, you know, these cats who wrote like four different books on John Lennon and three books on Mick Jagger. And, you know, now they're writing a book on George Harrison. Right. You know, I, want it, I want it to have like a little bit of a, a point of view. Yeah. And my point of view is that Mick was like cooler than we, th- we think yeah. he is. Yeah. But, you know, just be- between you and me and everyone who's listening, like, I, d- I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, like, I was kind of, I was writing this, like, kind of uh, moonlighting, writing this at the same time. Yeah. You know, because I was like, who gives a shit, really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but people can tell. Yeah. I mean, people, people know when you're writing a book and you're thinking who gives a shit, really, yeah. and they don't buy it. You know? <laughs> Didn't sell that well? Yeah, not that well, no. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes you have to write a book, especially the way that the... No, the, but you worked hard on it, whether your heart was in it or not. You did your work and, you know, there's part of you that feels like... you. you here's, here's another word of advice. You want some more advice? Yes. <laughs> when you have the thought you to write, go... Write all this down for you before sure, I go. When, when, when your impulse <laughs> is to go like, yeah, I didn't really want it, just don't say anything. Oh, you mean like I should... Just, yeah, yeah, because no one gives a fuck. It's, it's just like, it, that cuts both ways. All they want to hear you say is like, "Yeah, no, I had a really good time." Uh, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's really not that hard to do. I mean, it's I, true. No, but the weird thing is, is like you're compelled to be honest. All right, so you know, I have that same compulsion. But there's a time and a place for that kind of honesty. And and if you're just honestly going to sit there and beat the shit out of yourself in front of people that ask you mundane questions, I know. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's perverse. This is great. Here's a great example. This is my father. I, I'm with my father. <laughs> I'm with my father at a coffee shop in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I grew up. And I don't see him that often. But we go out. We're going to go out. Albuquerque for is cool. I've been to Albuquerque. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I grew up there. It's a great place. But we go to this coffee shop. Some dude comes up to my father. He goes, literally, he says, Barry, Marin, I can't believe it. I haven't seen you in what, 15, 20 years? How you doing? And my father goes, well, the money's running out, and I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. <laughs> As opposed to just, fine. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see you. How's no, the thing? That, is, that might be some of the best advice I've ever received. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> And in this business, absolutely, it's it's probably even more important. It's just, it's yeah. hard to do it because you just want to. I don't even know what the point you like. I can't help you. it. I can't help it. I, it's hard, dude. Yeah. I mean, either you want to take a shot at them or you want to no. trivialize what and they I do. I've burned so many fucking bridges. Like so that. many. Well, we yeah. have that same magic. There's certain people that can say one thing that people will never forget and it'll fuck them forever. And then another person could say it and they're like, oh, that's just him being him. I'm not, be, I'm not that guy. When I got fired from Spin in 2006, I was not, I was like waiting for the calls to come in. Because I was, I was like, you know, I was pretty flashy. I was like, I got a lot of attention. Yeah. And none of the, I didn't get a call from Blender. I didn't get a call from Rolling Stone. And then, like, then I started realizing, like, oh right, I was at pianos, and I told the editor of Blender that it was a piece of shit magazine. <laughs> right, you were just being honest, right, Mark? Look, you know, we both know. I know you. It's your job and everything, but you know it's garbage, right? You just got to shut the fuck up. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. That's the, yeah, that's true. Well, you're doing the work. You're doing it. You're doing it Mark Spitz style. Thanks, Mark. I mean, um, yeah. I, like I said, I'm a fan of that. I actually, I, I got mugged like- uh, uh, Finally. Last year. Yeah. I know. Ironically, <laughs> I was 42 years old. I've, I book, made it through. In the, in the book, you're like, it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got 42 years old. I was with the, do you know the writer Sloan Crosley? She's like, uh -huh. I was walking down the street with her yeah. on fucking 11th street in front of the quad. Yeah. Like, like literally like the most gentrified. Really? Oh, really? Right there? And I got mugged. We both got mugged. And, at gunpoint um, or knife point? They said they had a gun. I, I don't know. The cop. I mean. I, yeah. And and we're shaken up. Yeah. But I, obviously we just gave them the money and they left. And yeah. it was like the best scenario if you're going to get mugged right. in Manhattan. Right. You know, I didn't yeah. even see the flash. Of it was a gun. good mugging. It was, it was a polite mugging. Yeah. They even called her ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Nice. Yeah. Uh, thank you, ma'am. Yeah. yeah, yeah now move yeah, on. Yeah. You know? And and so, uh, but but then it started to you start it just naturally the adrenaline you start shaking and and yeah. and, and so I I walked her home and she she lived a little north of me on the west side, and I didn't know what to do so I was walking home to my apartment and now now the city was just like evil yeah, yeah. everyone was like yeah. fucking gonna kill me yeah you know and so I put I put your podcast on. And it was like that, like, you know, like, like, I don't know you, like, yeah. but I know your voice. Right. And it was like that, like, sort of thing <laughs> yeah. that I'm actually grateful to you. Like, it brought me, brought me back into like a, like, <laughs> less primal place because you were just talking to some comedian about, oh, you know, good. like. Good. So good. I was, I'm here I, to help, man. Yeah. I always thought if I ever got to like meet you again, I, uh, I would, I would tell you that because that was like, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad I was there. Forty-two for years old, walking with with a, a, another published writer, like down Eleventh Street. Yeah, in this day and age. Yeah. Yeah. See, there's a little of the old New York you miss. I took my eye <laughs> off the ball. I wasn't street smart, I guess, or maybe I'm not anymore. But what were you gonna do? Cross the street? I, I should have. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I could have. I, I don't know. Yeah. They they they. I. She says it was because I was carrying an umbrella. I had like a plaid umbrella yeah, and they just, sure. they just, they were like, they focused right in with the, the, pla the plaid one. Get them. Not a $3 one. <laughs> no. The $5 umbrella. No, it was a London fog. Yeah. He's committed They're to like that umbrella. He's, he's, get that he's a guy that doesn't leave umbrella <laughs> places. Yeah. All right. So that was part one. And then part two, because I was, uh, I wanted to make sure to be thorough with this guy because I hadn't finished his book and I loved the book. So I wanted to, to finish up this interview, so this part takes place in a hotel room in New York City in the second part of our conversation, the second conversation. 
you know, when I last talked to you, I, I'd only gotten through, I think, most of your college years and right. the beginning of the heroin addiction and you, you didn't get floundering the, in Hollywood. You didn't and, get the professional junkie. <laughs> right, professional junkie part. <laughs> But, but I think there's something interesting because there's something, you know, in that I don't understand, which is, you know, I didn't, I came to music crit really late. Like it didn't play a part in my life. And I don't know why it just wasn't on my radar or something relevant, but it's obviously a portal into a broader cultural crit that, that is important. But it by was, the time you starting got to, to become that by the time I got into it, and cause you, how'd you get the opportunity to spin? I didn't want to be a rock journalist. I wanted to be a rock journalist for spin. Like because didn't, didn't because like Stone. you know, along with the rest of the theme of the book, you you were seeking identity. Uh, because they they their writers sounded the way that I thought, and not the way that the people around me sounded. All right, so now that's the thing. You know, you know, now that the romantic element of it, you know, is in place, and you're managing drug addicts. So right, so so. Uh, I'm back in Shakespeare and Company. I'm not getting published anytime right. soon. I'm checking bags. I'm doing dope. I'm, I'm um, uh, you know, about, I'm sure I'm about to be fired. Even my girl, we, we split up, yeah. you know, so I was just like couch surfing. And um, I got, there was this like, I think it's called like Sessions at West 57th Street or something like that, where it's like Fiona Apple and Beck and all these people would sort of do these live shows for a bunch of connected industry motherfuckers, yeah. you know, and like, I think PBS broadcasted or something. Right, right. Like, kind of remember that. So I, I, I got on, uh, into that and then I saw my friend Ron Richardson, who was, um, who was a buyer at Shakespeare and Company. And he said, hey, I said, hey, man, what's going on? Because I've, I've been fired at this point. Yeah. And he's like, I'm at Spin now. Yeah. And I'm like, cool, man. You're writing for Spin. He goes, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm working on the website. I'm like, what's a website? <laughs> <laughs> the fuck is a website? Yeah. He's like, I'm doing content. You know, it's like we really need content. Are you, are you doing any writing? I'm like, yeah, I'm doing writing. I don't know what's content. You know, I don't know what the fuck. You know. So he gets me an interview, and and like literally, literally, I clean up overnight. Like no dope. Uh, uh, you know, go down to Astor Place, get a haircut. Yeah. You know, just do the whole, like, like this is your last chance. You're 28 years old. You've been reading Spin since 1985. It's your favorite magazine. There's an opening. I don't know what the web is. <laughs> it's new, right? Yeah. It's like, it's still like the green cursor. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. So this is like even pre-Matrix, you know. Yeah. There's chat rooms, I think. And you're That's not it. Sp- yeah. Yeah. <sighs> but he's got like Sonic Youth uh, blogging from their... Or, or whatever they called it at the time. It wasn't called blogging, but, um, you know, uh, their, t- their electronic tour diary, yeah. filing their electronic tour diary. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this ground floor as it, as it gets. I think the Pitchfork had just started maybe, maybe a year before. Mm-hmm. This is like, 90, like early 97. And, um, and so I get there and I get in the door and I, I look around and then I realize that like, like we are as low on the totem pole as can, we're like the, the people in the basement on enlightened. Yeah. You're you an know? experiment. Yeah. Like yeah. no one, no one says hello to you. You know, the big writers there, they're like the stars right? and you're shit. And they're on the web is literally shit. upstairs. And no one's putting money into yeah. And I'm literally like being paid like off the books. Like that's how shit it is. So, so this is like sparking everything like, you know, like the, the spite and the fucking, but I, I imagine at that time, because you were in, you had to have like, you had to reach into some 
relatively real competitive spirit and try to figure out how the fuck you were going to climb. Well, I had two things going for me. One is that like I've been reading the magazine forever. And the other is that I didn't give a fuck Mm -hmm. because I was just glad to be off the street. And if I had to go back to the street or, or worse back to long Island, yeah, you know, like the folks, like, like I could do that. I had the safety net and I had the junk, Yeah, you know? So I had like the two things that were like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do what I want to do. Kind of, kind of things in place. But I also wanted, um, Whatever I wanted to help Spin succeed because I loved it so much. I just loved that thing that it was and that it went up against Rolling Stone. Right. I remember that. You know? Yeah. And, um, and so I was like, uh, I was wrestling with being a soldier and also being so, so disgusted by that feeling that you're in high school again. And not only that, but like you're the uncool kid. Yeah. You know, what do you have to do to get and this is, it's so ironic now. It really is because print doesn't count for shit anymore and everything right. is the web. But at the right. time it was completely reversed. It was right. up is down, black is white, you know, and like. But it's interesting because because the reason you like spin was that it was an, it was a shift in the paradigm of how, you know, music was understood and, and, and culturally. Oh, yeah, relevant. writing about like Fella and right. Miles Davis and, and Steve Earle. And, right. And, and um, now, you know, here you are in what seemed black to be. Flag and. Yeah. But what you were in what seemed to be like, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, the, the weird temporary. And, like, and, yeah. and there were there were people in like Minutemen T-shirts and like, you know, mm-hmm. Charles Aaron was there and he was like he just interviewed Bob Stinson and right. Sia Michael was there and she just interviewed Biggie and he just died. And like there were people who were like in that world legendary already. Right. You know, but they were upstairs. They were upstairs. We weren't even on the same floor we didn't we didn't we weren't we didn't eat lunch together we didn't drink together after work um so i was like how do i get up there what do i gotta do to get up there and ironically the way that i finally got up there is that this editor dave moody was writing a piece about ex junkie chic and he was looking for a junkie to do some reporting (laughs) and he goes he, he summons me up there and he goes um don't freak out but i heard that you do heroin and I'm like, no, man, I don't do fucking, I don't do that. I just want this job, man. I'm going, I need to get a job, don't fire man. Me, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Am I getting fired, man? And he's like, I need someone who knows about, about that scene to, to do some reporting. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know about the scene. Yeah, I'm, yeah I'm sure. Down. Yeah. I'm on it right now. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> nodding right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, that's, I guess that's a really beautiful irony because that was my in. And once they, once, like, like you know that because you, you're still around, man. It's like, once they open the door, man, you go, you, all they got to do is open the door a little bit. Yeah. And the, and the good ones, that's all you need. Yeah. You know? And by 1999, I was writing like literally a year and a half later, I was writing cover stories. I was just like, and, and, and like Zev Barrow and these people, I just like, I'm blowing, I'm blowing your doors off, man. Like I'm not. Well, what was your approach to it? How did you, how did you do it differently? Um, uh, my approach to it was that I, I wanted to be, this was at a time when it's hard to explain, I guess it was at a time when uh, VH1 had like a huge cultural impact uh-huh. where they were starting to recycle the myths of rock and roll via behind the music yeah. and, and things like that. It was filling a void because people had gotten so academic in terms of music criticism. It had gotten too classy almost. Right. There, there wasn't, there wasn't that like, Gonzo. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? If I, even if it's not me, yeah. it's a character. Yeah. But Hunter Thompson is a character. Lester Bangs is a sure. character. Those aren't real people. Right. You know, George Plimpton is a character. I just saw that movie. Many you characters. Know? 
those are the people that get attention. And sometimes in this business, it's like all you need is, I'm not talking about like, you know, I don't want to be this, I don't want to suffer. I don't have to answer to this guy forever. But for now, I feel like it could, it could work. So I, I invented this person and this person made the addiction that I already had useful because this person could party harder than the actual rock stars mm -hmm. and was more of a rocker mm -hmm. than the actual rock stars and sort of was a little angry at the rock stars because th they would make more money off a shitty single than I would ever make in like my life mm -hmm. as a rock writer. Right. So I was just like, fuck, I had that. Fuck you. Yeah. Your singles better be good. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Or a uh, thing. And I was, um, and, 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 Sometimes, sometimes you get lucky with with the 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 zeitgeist or whatever. I hate that fucking word, but it's like, right, yeah. Where just around the time that this is going on, you get Jack White mm -hmm. and you get Julian Casablancas and you get um, uh, Karen O and all these really like really exciting, fully embracing everything that's like rock, sweaty, mm -hmm. beer spitting loud bands the kind of bands that like remind you of the clash or zeppelin or like all the people that like lester bangs and cameron crow and and um uh, nick kent got in their time i yeah. thought they would that, that would not happen for me right and when that happened for me and my character was already in place then i got sent to tour with all of them and drink with all of them yeah. <laughs> and do coke with all of them yeah and and it was it was just it was it was it was the right the right bullshit guy with the right real good bands right. at the right time. Uh -huh. And it was like also that thing Lester Bang said that Exile on Main Street was about partying in the face of tragedy, and there was a lot of post nine eleven partying in the face of tragedy. Interesting in both hip hop. They, but their tragedy was Brian Jones, or what was their tragedy? What was he? Yeah, saying? and and, and just, Vietnam, the end of Vietnam, and. Yeah, yeah, and and being chased out of England by the tax right, man, right, and right. Just you know, fuck it. So like we're when, in the south like, of France, and we're gonna like part. It's like yeah. life is shit. We owe hundreds of millions of pounds. We don't even own Mother's Little Helper right. anymore. Right, <laughs> or satisfaction. But but the the but so the the nine eleven thing was like much more sort of uh, cultural tragedy for everyone. So everyone was in a no, PTSD. It was a, it was a literal tragedy. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't a figurative right, tragedy, but right. it was also uh, a, a a cultural. I don't know what the word is, and I, I don't want to like. Be, and you were here that day. I was. Yeah, it was. What's the word? It was. It was a uh, uh, almost like a defiant. It, it fueled our defiance culturally in the city. It was almost like a. There was. There was. There were no. Short of like the Wu Tang Clan. I don't know how you feel about John Spencer Blues Explosion, but there was. There's not a lot of like really great bands here. And then it seemed like there were dozens and dozens of them, in the fall of. 2001 mm -hmm. and people were paying attention to them mm -hmm. and we were like and i'm not i'm not just talking about the strokes you know i'm, I'm talking about like the who playing at that show mm -hmm. the garden mm -hmm. that october mm -hmm. i'm talking about like rock and roll helping right rebuild the city yeah and in a way this country yeah and i felt like i was a tiny minuscule component in that because right. i was writing at a rock magazine and because i believed in the power that power mm -hmm. and all you have to do now i mean I, you still you watch that who shit on youtube you still get chills yeah or bowie doing um america by simon and garfunkel opening the show anyway 
so after that, like literally after that, like yeah. I, I almost became, I subsumed into that character that I invented because it was easier to be numb. It was easier to right. be somebody else. Right. And it was, um, it was easier to party in the face of tragedy all the time. Right. So like I was eating Valium like Tic Tacs. I was doing Coke when I woke up in the morning. I was, I would drink a, a, a um, <laughs> half a pint of Jim Beam before I even left to go to a bar. Right. You know, it was like, and, and I told Saya, my boss, I'm like, I, I, I said, send me anywhere. Yeah. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Just keep me working. Yeah. Keep me on the road. I went to Australia. I went to Sweden. I went to uh, Paris. I went to, I, you know, um, Orlando. I would go fucking anywhere. Yeah. Because I didn't want, I just. With I'd, bands, following bands? Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to be downtown. I, I couldn't. So that's what defines your style and your approach. And, and you were in, it was like a, a sad, uh, uh, synchronistic. It moment. locked me into yeah. this, to this, to this guy that I never fully intended to be. Right. It locked me into the guy I was pretending to be so I could get ahead at spin. So you crossed the line. And the only thing that unlocked me was Elizabeth, my girlfriend at the time. How long did it take? Um, about a year before you hit the wall. She was persistent. Yeah. I was, I was, getting into fights and bars but you were cu- like, you were doing big stories i was i was still writing well what was the best story you ever wrote during that time what is the the, the moment where you i've been told that it's the profile and spin about ryan adams i've been told uh-huh. by people who've read my stuff in spin and the irony is that ryan was doing all the same things right that i was you know um i think why it was good is because it was written in a way there are two two stories that i am very proud of because they were written in a way that I imagined Lester and Cameron and Nick Kent wrote stories and in a way that increasingly was not the way that the business was encouraging people to, to write stories anymore. Which was now him. you listened to, to albums in conference rooms and record sure. companies because people were stealing music. Right. And you didn't get, you got an hour with a band. You didn't get to go on tour with a band. Right. And you didn't get to hang out with a band in various cities yeah. over months. Right. And the Ryan Adams story... I was in the studio with him in New Orleans. I was in his apartment in New York. We were drinking in seven seven two uh, no, B yeah. that bar, yeah. the cop spot, like right up the street. Um, we were speedballing together, <laughs> you know. But it made for a great story, and it made for a notable story because nobody, nobody at fucking Rolling Stone, David Frick, wasn't writing stories like that. But that model, that whole model, was gone. Yeah, you didn't go on the bus anymore, right? You know, I went on the fucking bus. Yeah. I went out with Guided by Voices. You know, I drank with Guided by Voices. <laughs> Who could survive that? Yeah. <laughs> I went out with the Strokes, you know. I stayed up all night with the Strokes. That was another story. It was like six cities. Um, that was my that was my almost famous story. You know, they were they were still water. But now, okay, so let's let's talk about this in retrospect, because now you're how old? Uh, I'm 43. I'm 49. And and I feel the same way you do. But I, I mean, I didn't take the risks that you did, uh, you know, in order to service this, this, this spirit. Yeah, you know, I don't want to call it an ideology, but this, this passion, um, you know, to chase this dragon. So now as a, an older guy, now you've seen the arc of it and you've seen, you know, that, that people have died for it. And even the people that, that didn't die for it, you know, when they should have, you know, eventually died of it. You know, what do you feel now? Alone. <laughs> oh, I, I feel like um, uh, 
I feel like you remember that HBO documentary on <laughs> supermodels who get older and they don't get invited to as many parties anymore because they're not beautiful anymore <laughs> in the same did, way. They didn't do the smart thing and become a trophy wife. Um, yeah. I feel like when I get to the shows or when I get the work, uh-huh. uh, I feel comfortable because I'm able to do it now and just enjoy the music and the spirit. I don't need the, 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 to live it. the handicaps anymore. But the irony is that I don't get to the shows as much as I need to uh-huh. because there, um, there are no, there's no spin sending me to the shows. There's no, I, I, I do a couple of pieces for the New York times a year, but like there's really no infrastructure anymore. The irony is that once I figured out how to yeah. do this without, you know, the, living it, the monkeys and the feather yeah. boas and yeah. the bells and whistles, uh-huh. They want shit to do, uh-huh. you know. They're like, "Oh, great, good for you. You're not dead, but like, we ain't got no work for you." You know, is it still out there though? Is the spirit still out there? What do you think about these kids? What do you mean, like the Brooklyn kids? Whatever they are, well, what I mean, do, like, what do you think about them? What do you think about the twenty year old co- comics who who are, you know are, are well? Like, you have to take the hit mark. <laughs> <laughs> I take it every morning, man. <laughs> I mean, that's because. <laughs> You know, because there's no other way to there's no other way to frame whatever you feel about those kids other than like kids today. Okay, Oi. okay, it's easier for me than it is for you, because I'm the fucking Marlboro man. Yeah, I'm like the the uh, the the John Gotti. Yeah, I'm the thing that doesn't exist anymore. But I'm there's just not going to be young rock writers, right? Well, I'm just there ain't uh, no place for them to to write except in their bedroom. I'm just sort of the cool professor. I, you know, like it, well, it, I could it, see it, myself easing into that. If I could, if I could, but the, the, the network, the, the I'm one, not good at networking. The one feeling I have, see, the, this is the weird thing is that what you grow to learn, whether there is rock writing or not, or whether the spirit still exists is that, you know, either you, either these kids are going to survive it. You know, they're going to take their hits. They're going to go up and down. Some of them are going to become huge. Others are going to get opportunities. They're going to think they're huge. You just see these cycles of success and failure. And the only thing that matters in the long run is this, this tragic persistence of not being able to do anything else. And at some point you have to say like that's okay i'm tired i wish you the best of luck did you ever think about getting a job job no there's no after a certain point there's no plan b right because i would be fired by yeah, yeah no, they're, they're, you're not prepared to do anything other than teach maybe so what, i are think you're gonna work I at think, a restaurant i think i'm gonna teach i'm gonna try and sock some money away hopefully this the the the, the my novel will get you know the movie of my novel will get made I'll get, you know, another book deal. I'll be smarter because I'm not fucked up. And that's like, I don't have a plan. I'm kind of fucked because what I, what I invested you like, in, but you like being what fucked. I invested in, yeah. the whole culture yeah, yeah. and the medium right. is over. But is the spirit of rock and roll still alive? On a good day. Not in you, but I mean, can you look out and say like, I still have hope for what, you know, what made me feel alive is still out there and it's still, can you be uh, 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 sort of uh, empathetic enough to say like, you know, maybe, maybe another band will, will lead these kids down this path. I don't know. I, I think I'm damaged, you know, yeah. like there's this band called Savages, right? Yeah. And they're on Matador and they're supposed to be the shit and they were yeah. the shit in England last year and now yeah. they're the shit this year. And I hear, listen to them and all I hear is Susie and the Banshees, you know, like sure. I'm one of, that, one of those guys now. Yeah, it's been you know? done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Seen fucked. Seen it. Yeah. No, you're, you're not fucked. You look just, how grouchy Morrissey is. All Morrissey is now is a grouch. You know, the, whereas he was Jesus to me. And now he's just like this. They he's get like, old. He, he's well, the they, old lady complaining about the humidity. Yeah, I know. You know? So it, it happens. 
But but I, I think what you're realizing and what I realized a while ago is like after a certain point, it's just sort of like I'd like to not die broke and I'd like to have health insurance. I, I would like to have to have all that. Yeah. I would like to have, I don't want millions of dollars, but I yeah. would like to have like a little bit of like, not fuck you money, but like, please yeah. leave me alone money. Yeah, like I don't have to work yeah. right now. Yeah. And I would like to have some semblance of respect from other people and self-respect. And I think I want, I think part of the reason why I wrote the book is because I, I want, I, I'm not cool anymore. And I want, if, if I have a child and he ever acts up <laughs> and thinks I'm a pussy, I want to shove it in his face and be like, read about daddy. Read this motherfucker. Yeah, you he'll know? be like, you're old. <laughs> Yeah, and when I thought that I was going to marry Elizabeth, I yeah. thought like, God, our kids are going to be so either they're going to be so cool or they're going to be so um, pissed off because we can be like, oh yeah, well we met Nick Cave, yeah. so fuck you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, go to your room. The, the sad thing is, is none of those names are going to matter to your kids. No, I, I, I don't think you know. I, I don't think REM matters to kids anymore. Yeah, you know, or you too, in the same no. way. No, it's it's impossible to to to. Um, wrap your head around that because the, growing up in the eighties, like that was, you know, yeah, but this is really just sort of generational dude. You know, whether or not you can frame it however you want that it's all over, but you know, when it comes right down to it, it's a, it's a generational thing. I would see these guys, these old punks, these seventies punks <laughs> yeah. at Don Hills. Yeah. You know, in the nineties yeah. when I was there to get laid and, and dance uh-huh. and they seemed to be treated with respect. Sure. You know, you didn't, sure. you didn't say, who is this tall guy blocking my way at the bar? Oh, it's Joey Ramone. Fuck Joey Ramone. Like they were like, you know, some, oh my people God, it's Joey Ramone. Yeah, some people said that. Like, I would like to be one of those the guys. More, the guys who were more like you when you were younger said that about Joey Ramone in Dunhills. Believe me. There was a couple of kids saying, fuck that guy. Fuck the Ramones. Yeah. No, I wear an Exeter t-shirt. When Richard, when Richard Hell's <laughs> memoir came out like a couple of weeks uh-huh. after mine, I was like, fuck that guy. That dinosaur. Fuck that 70s. Yeah. They, they've been in know? the way all along. When do they get out of the way? Yeah. Yeah. The blank generation. <laughs> Blow me. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I guess I just want, I want to, to fit in somewhere. And it's, it's, a, I'm genuinely, I'm joking about it and laughing about it with you, but I'm genuinely sort of sad about it. You know, like sure. I, I want a place. I, everyone wants, everyone wants a place. Yeah. And it remains to be seen where my place is. But I am grateful that I, I, I didn't manage to snuff myself because I, I, I had a lot of friends who, who, who aren't here, you know. So maybe, it, maybe it'll happen. I, I hope so. And it was, it was good talking to you. Uh, yeah, you too. Thanks, Mark. Okay, that's our show, folks. I hope you enjoyed going back to New York, going back into drugs, going back into rock and roll. Uh, Mark Spitz uh, is a, a complicated but uh, good man. And uh, you know, I'm glad we had that conversation. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Uh, leave a comment. Try not to be a dick, but I know it's very difficult for some of you, Smitty. And uh, what else? What else have I got for you? There's T-shirts there. There's things happening. If you get the premium, if you go to WTF Pod and get the uh, free app and upgrade to the premium, you'll find myself and my partner, Brendan McDonald, giving sort of a primer of uh, of the episodes we think are may, may be under-listened to, but uh, definitely amazing. A little uh, a little guide, a little uh, deep cut commentary on the uh, premium. Uh, and we're going to be giving you more premium content as the year goes on. And uh, thanks you. Thanks. Thanks you. Thanks you all. Thanks you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed that Chia pudding. Hope some of you took me up on that. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>